Good to be with you, and this morning we are beginning a new series that will inch us towards the Advent season, always praying how God will guide and direct. I tend to move from Old Testament to New, back to Old, and so forth. And this morning I'd love for you to find your way in your Older Testament, having completed the book of James now, to the book of Habakkuk. And I know that there are people who have learned to pronounce that in various ways, well, however you learn to pronounce it, just say it emphatically, and it'll have impact, I'm sure. Uh, but for me, it's Habakkuk, and so I'd love for you to get your Bibles set before you in the back of your Older Testament. He was a, a minor prophet with a major teaching that we've got to be able to apply to our contemporary scene today. I'd be, like to begin reading in verse 1, take it down to verse 4, and this will give us a sense of the proje- trajectory that Habakkuk would have us take. The oracle, you see, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. And from the wicked, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth, perverted. Now, Habakkuk has been given this from God. It's around 605 B.C., about 15, 16 years after a major revival had taken place under a king by the name of Josiah. But now it's 605 B.C., and there is this growing movement of a major force that thus far the newscasters have not picked up on, the Chaldeans, it's the Babylonians. We know them. We've studied the book of Daniel. It would become a great empire, but at this point they were still in an emergent state. But God has already seen what's going to take place and where this is headed. And we've got to find out how this relates to modern-day life as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And our Father, as we come into your presence again, we're doing so as people who need to seek you. Holiness. Righteousness. Grace. We live in a world of seekers, but people tend to be seeking something other than you. They look for substitutes rather than the sovereign God who sent Jesus to die for our sins. Pour your spirit on us. If there's any father in these services today, tonight, that find themselves spiritually curious at this point in time, but haven't put faith and trust in Jesus. Speak to that heart. 
Show them you've been seeking them out. Draw them to you. There's going to be that person in one of these services today who perhaps has been pinning his or her faith in their religion, but not necessarily in the Savior. Show them, Father, that religious forms can be substitutes for the one who died for our sins. Our trust has to be in you alone. On this Lord's Day, as we collectively gather together in all these services, as this family of faith now seeks you. Again, in these moments together, praying that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. Come here, Father, to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at the end of one of the board meetings in recent days. I was driving home, praying, asking God, what next book should we be looking into together as a congregation? Sat down with my smartphone and pad of paper and so on, because I wanted to turn on the news and catch up on what was happening in the course of the day. Megan Kelly was on at that point, and a rather intense man that some of us are very aware of, was being interviewed, Sheriff David Clark. Now, Sheriff David Clark has become something of a national figure as he's being interviewed again and again and again with regard to his take upon what's happening in the cities across the land and the effect it's having upon the the police and other forms of authority. A graduate of Concordia, summa cum laude, Now the sheriff in Milwaukee County, some were told, contemplating a run for mayor of the city. He's a man who's obviously an individual who's been seeking God. And as he seeks God, he began to talk about the issues of the hour using terms that were synonymous, if not identical, to the words of Habakkuk. Because he said, I have this burden on my heart. As he looks around at the sanctuary cities and shootings that have occurred, and as he's being posed questions with regard to violence and riots that have broken out in the past months and year, he uses the word violence repeatedly. And then captures my attention by noting how, in his estimation, justice has been paralyzed. And when I hear the word burden, and when I ponder the word violence, and when I see him link together this whole idea of justice and paralysis, I know that God is showing us what comes next. Habakkuk. Because in three succinct chapters, what Habakkuk does is that he deals with these issues that the good sheriff has been identifying. Issues that some might have viewed as because written in the Old Testament were time-bound, but in reality are timeless, and these words are timely. 
What I want to do with you is to explore this book together leading up to Advent. We're going to look very carefully at what happened here. What's going on here? There's a national decline being described here. It's 605 B.C., and militarily, Judah has been compromised. Spiritually, it's in a decline. And yet, just 16 years earlier, there had been a tremendous revival, a revival under the leadership of King Josiah, where the law of God had been found. It had been lost, but it had found, in, of all places, the temple. But 16 years have gone by, and now Habakkuk is so burdened for the decline he's seeing regionally, nationally, globally. Now, if we took a similar glance back in time from 2015, and let's say we focus somewhere around 2001, and we begin to think about 9-11, and you think about the way in which people supposedly were seeking God, his protection, his intervention, and now... Consider the movements since 01 to around 2015, October, here today. And where were we? And where are we? And how did we get here, anyways? I want to explore this with you, and we're going to draw out two significant observations out of the first 11 verses of Habakkuk's writings. And the first one is this, that you and I, we should seek God regarding the injustices we face. Now, as the good sheriff was identifying various aspects of injustice in the land, Habakkuk's going to do the same, and he starts by saying and speaking of the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, not heard, saw. And what captures our attention is that the Hebrew word for oracle is the word burden. Habakkuk is tremendously burdened for his region. He's tremendously burdened for his people. He's tremendously burdened for his nation. Is that you? As you ponder where America was and America is, as you ponder the supposed faithfulness of where believers were and believers are, and as you look at the global transitions and changes, what burdens you? What weighs you down? That is the word picture behind the term oracle. In other words, there seems to be this heavy gravity that has pulled down his emotional internal state. And somehow, someway, he needs to be able to articulate what God is pressing upon him internally. You ever have this internal pressure that needs some kind of outward expression? It's not merely he heard. He saw. It's as if God is now painting a picture here of what is taking place globally, nationally, regionally, personally. And now he has to be taking a deep breath at this point. What do you do with that burden you feel? Maybe for family members, maybe co-workers, maybe students, maybe the government, 
all mingled in together, and you've got this gravity that's weighing down the soul. Do you see in verse 2 the wording, O Lord? The one letter O is usually used to describe an emotional exhale, dealing with all the things pertaining to who matters most, God. He doesn't start with, Lord. By the way, Lord. What he's got to do now with this weight is exhale it. And so he, he gives you that sense of, oh, Ever been there? Notice that the next word is capitalized. It's all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D. This was the covenantal name, the relational name that God had established as he revealed himself to his people. Do you have that relational connection with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ? If so, you've got something to do with the Oz of life. Because what Habakkuk does at this point is not to look out horizontally with his, with his burdens. He looks upwardly. He wants to do something with this burden. As we drew out in the book of James, you see, we've got to be able to distinguish between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above and draw the wisdom from above and apply it to the issues from below. And so here's this emotional, oh, Lord. I want you to notice here that under this whole idea of the injustices we face, you've got to do something with them. I want you to, first of all, notice with me the questions you and I have got to ask. And they come our way in verses 2 and 3. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Now, he and we identify with one another. It's when we start to connect the how longs of life. You're longing for an intervention But for some reason, the delay seems to be part of God's design. Why does he utilize delays in his designs? How long? Have you ever posed that question to God? When he goes on with this question, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? The word cry comes from the Hebrew and carries with the idea of an emotional scream. He needs his Lord, capital L-O-R-D, to be his outlet. Who's your outlet? And do you go vertical with your outlet? He's making, and you can almost sense the feelings here, of a, of a statement about God, and you will not hear. God, are you indifferent? Notice once again he utilizes the word cry for the second time, a second scream or cried you violence, and now the good sheriff of Milwaukee would nod his head. Yes, what I'm seeing, even in the sanctuary cities. That's what Ferguson was all about. 
He's pondering the relationship with the police force and the mayor of Baltimore. And he's looking at Supreme Court decisions. And you and I do the same. And now once again, there's emotion that flows from the internal realms of his soul. Violence. As you watch ISIS make its way across the landscape of the Middle East. You will not save? Question. The word cry appears twice. I cry, I cry. The idea of the weight is attached to the question of the why. But then our eyes and our minds and our thought processes go back to the Old Testament. And there was Joseph who experienced an injustice. And he was incriminated, thrown into a prison. And there was the weight and the legitimate question of, but the why? Why did you allow this to happen? There would be a Moses, and this Moses would see the injustice of this Jew being treated harshly by this Egyptian. He wants to do God's will, but his way. And so rather than waiting for God to intervene, Moses intervenes. You ever been prone to do that, to intervene in place of God? God's will, but your way. And so he thinks he's providing an act of justice, but it is an injustice because now he is removed from that sector and placed out in the wilderness where God will take him through the schools of leadership where for 40 years he will learn to wait upon God in the midst of his why questions. You ever been there? You're waiting and you're asking why. Someday... Moses will find out the answer when he returns to that wilderness leading a group of people. There's going to be a David, and this David, you see, has been anointed to be king. But for some reason, here's the why question, the present king seems to want to take David's life. David's got the promise. But Saul, you see, has got the throne. David is threatened. David must wait. And the human tendency is to ask why in the midst of the wait. Is that where you're at? Ben Patterson writes in his book, Waiting. My stomach nodded when the call came to rush to the hospital. It was the second time in four years I'd been called to be with this family for precisely the same reason. The parents had been awakened by disturbing sounds coming from their six-year-old daughter's bedroom. When they got to her bedside, they found her having seizures. Paramedics were called. She was taken to the emergency room of a nearby hospital. And a few hours later, she was pronounced inexplicably dead. Her older sister died four years before at the same age, apparently of the same mysterious cause. And before this family came to my church, they had lost their firstborn, a boy, to a rare birth disorder. All three of their children had passed away. Last month, we sat in their family room and talked of all this. They love Jesus. They're sensitive, thoughtful, even quick to laugh. 
They've been wonderful parents, and they have no doubt that their children are now in the arms of their Heavenly Father. But the questions, the questions have more to do with themselves. The why question. Why should they be chosen to bear such a singular burden as Habakkuk exhales with his burden? What does it mean? How does God expect them to live their lives now that they have lost their children? What's his purpose? Why? And then Pastor Patterson writes, I wait with them for the answers. Is there a why connected to your wait? What I want you to notice here is that he moves from questions to ask into observations to make. It's as if he almost feels a need to inform God. You ever feel a need to inform God? God's all-knowing. In the second part of verse 3, destruction and violence are before me. It's close at hand. Strife and contention arise. You see the word strife? Circle it. It was a word that was used in that time period to describe people who endlessly were going to court. Litigation. One court scene after the next, after the next, the docket is more than full. The justices simply cannot keep up with the lawsuits. At this point, the people of Judah have turned on one another. It seems to be a legal mess. And so here's his take in verse 4, and it's utterly astounding how he goes about praising this. So the law is paralyzed. The word law there is Torah, which carries with it the idea to instruct or to direct. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. You see, when law is connected to justice, justice is connected to law, then people will experience true justice on the basis of God's moral law. But when the courts and the decision-makers of a land do not seek God's moral law and simply impose their own sense of justice, justice becomes an injustice, even within the courts. And look at recent court decisions. I'm driving by a barn heading back to my home at the end of a long day. And as as I'm driving by, I notice that there is a door. The door has been unhinged from the framework for that door in the barn. And I pull off to the side and begin to reflect upon what I see there and write some thoughts. Because what we see here currently, whether it be individually or nationally, certainly legally, is an unhinging. Just as that door was unhinged, from the structure of the bond, so justice has become unhinged from the absolutes of God's law. There is an unhinging, you see, that has taken place. 
and what is called justice when it is unhinged from God's moral law is, in essence, an injustice. And so when Torah is paralyzed, justice, therefore, never goes forth. Don't assume just because it's called justice, therefore, it is justice. For the wicked surround the righteous, they're hemmed in, so justice goes forth perverted. Arkan Hughes was a pastor of College Church of Wheaton, a close family friend of, of us. He tells the story of an art enthusiast in New York. And this man who was an executive, had on the walls of his office this incredible collection of etchings, including one of the Leaning Tower of Pizza. And for a long time, he noticed that it persisted, this hanged, it, it, it persisted in hanging crooked, despite the fact that he would straighten it out, this picture, every morning. And so at last, Kent tells us, he spoke to the lady who cleaned up the room each night and asked her if she was responsible for its lopsided condition, this leaning tower of Pisa. She said, yes. I have to hang it crooked to make the tower hang straight. And I thought about justice as it relates to law. And when justice becomes unhinged from God's moral law, justice becomes crooked. When God's moral law is there, to keep a nation straight, to give it a path, to give it a direction, to give it a sense of what ought to be a destination. What do you do with all this? Habakkuk is processing this. And now he's got questions that need to be answered. He's got observations that he is certainly making. And his mind goes back, as your mind might go back, to a previous time when when even the nation seemed so spiritually invigorated in seeking out God. And here is Habakkuk, and he is invigorated in seeking out God, but his soul is weighed down. It's burdened. And he sees the violence, and he is troubled by the fact that the portraits and the etchings seem to be forever crooked as he looks at the profile regionally and nationally. Where do you go from here? There was a revival just 16 years earlier. How did we get to where we are now? Well, there's a second observation. The second one he wants to draw out for us. That not only should we seek God regarding the injustices we face in verses 1 through 4, but secondly, we should seek God regarding the intervention we need in 5 through 11. And so now we look very carefully at the key verse of this entire section, verse 5. 
And now God speaks to Habakkuk after Habakkuk, with this why wait tension, has been speaking to God. But he does so relationally. He said, oh Lord, not merely oh God. Now, God breaks in, and what God says is, look among the nations, and it is plural, and see. Now, would you do this for me? Would you draw a line between verse 3 and verse 5? And I want you to see how the look-sees of verse 3 correspond to the look-see of verse 5. Habakkuk is seeking God, and, oh Lord, he goes on to say, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? This is Habakkuk's take on God. And now God flips it and says, Habakkuk, look among the nations, but it's plural, and see, plural, wonder and be astounded. Plural. Why plural, Gary? What God is doing at this point is saying that this message is more than just for Habakkuk. It's for all who put faith and trust in the sovereign God and are able to call him Lord, capital L-O-R-D. It's plural. It's for all believers of all time. And now what he challenges you and me in the midst of watching the movements of an ISIS and pondering the global tensions. Look, in response to Habakkuk's challenge to God, look. Look among the nations, plural. Look beyond your own nation. See, in response to Habakkuk's challenge to God, see. Wonder and be astounded. Now you look at that. And as you look at that, what you've got to see is what he means by see. And you've got to look into what he means by look. And now your mind rapidly moves forward to that point where subsequent to the death of Jesus Christ, this tomb is empty. Simon Peter and that other disciple, he doesn't want to name him, but it's himself, you know, John. They rush to this tomb. Both of them were running together in chapter 20, but the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first, and stooping in to look, to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. The other disciple in verse 8 who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. And now what God is challenging believers to do is to consider the greatness of the wonders and the greatness of his accomplishments. And be astounded because as he goes on to say in verse 5, for I am doing a work in your days, plural, that you would not believe if told. And the Apostle Paul seized on that when in Acts chapter 13, verse 41, arguing for the resurrection of Christ, looks at religious unbelievers and says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And he's quoting now Habakkuk as he's arguing with weight for the significance of resurrection. 
And now you bring the resurrected Savior into the intense burden heart of a sheriff. And you look at the burdens and you look at the violence, you see, and you ponder the injustice of the supposed justice. And then you take a step back and remind yourself, but God's involved. He's there. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Beware of the undercurrents behind and beneath the currents that are so visible. Caesar Augustus makes an edict. Everybody is to go back into their own settings to be registered. And a Joseph and a Mary make their way back to a town of Bethlehem that would be prophesied of eight centuries prior. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And what God is now doing at this point, then, is he's stirring you and stirring me to consider God's amazing work as the Apostle Paul challenged the religious unbelievers to do subsequent to resurrection. And now, as Habakkuk is being challenged to do by the sovereign God. And God has got the political, the cultural, the social, the personal, and all the various dimensions of life woven together as you and I ponder that unhinged door leaning against a barn. And we're saying this world is becoming unhinged. And I look at my own personal experience and I feel like I'm becoming unhinged. I need need a work. I need God to work. And reconnect what has been disconnected. And then God says this. And we're utterly astounded. In verse 6 he says. For behold. He's such a visual speaker. Our God is. For behold I am raising up the Chaldeans. And now Habakkuk is saying. They haven't been a big issue. Until he checks the various newscasts and realize that what the Chaldeans have done is already seized Nineveh, which had been the capital of Assyria, and furthermore, in a battle of Carchemish, had basically defeated Egypt and now making their way towards Jerusalem. And he's saying, but Jerusalem, that is the promised city by the great promiser himself, God. You are going to use unbelievers as part of your plan For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And there's the second part of this intervention. Because you note not only God's amazing work, but furthermore, God's unlikely workers. Look at the instruments that he's using here. Not believers. Unbelievers. And now, not only do you look historically, but futuristically, all at the same time, connect to the present, and you watch what's happening and unfolding in the Middle East, and the confusion that's taking place, and you ponder the various court decisions, and the moral confusion that seems to envelop like a fog upon this nation. And then he adds, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Why not the Jews? Why not just stir us to a Josiah moment? He's raising up the unbelievers here to discipline the believers, the supposed believers. 
and then describes them, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Sounds so 2015. Their dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from them. And you circle that word justice, and what did you find in verse 4? That when Habakkuk, Habakkuk, however you like to pronounce it, the law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth. In this case, they don't look for the law. They just produce their own justice in verse 7. And their justice, which is obviously an injustice because it's not connected to the law, the door is leaning against the bond, you know. They're producing an injustice which is sweeping the landscape. Dignity go forth from themselves. They define human dignity. They determine what is truly valued in life as they take life. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for, and there's that word now for the third time in this section, violence. As the good sheriff leans back and ponders it. They all come for violence and all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand And right when you think that the political leaders throughout the world might be able to come together, develop a plan to be able to address the scourge on the landscape, how are these these people described? At kings, they scoff. They scoff at authority because those who have authority lack power to be able to do what needs to be done. And at rulers, what do they do? Such people that devour the landscape. And they look at the powerless supposed leaders. They laugh. They laugh. But the psalmist in in the second psalm of verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have kept my king on Zion, my holy hill, as Peter and John look and see the graves empty. And the heavens laugh at the laughter from below. And the laughter of the wisdom from above is greater than the laughter of the wisdom from below. They laugh at every fortress, these two. They pile up earth and take it. And now what we find here is that once again we have historic validation of God's word because this is exactly what the Babylonians typically would do when they would seize a city. They would come in with with the tools necessary to pile up sand and dirt until they could simply march their soldiers over the walled cities and take control. They pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like the wind. Go on. And what does God say about this? The guilty men whose own might, their own sense of power, is their God. 
What do you do with this? You look at the cross where God used unlikely workers. A Caesar Augustus as it relates to Christ's birth. A Herod or a Pontius Pilate as it relates to Christ's death. And you challenge people in your network of relationships. Look. See. Wonder and be astounded. For as God put it, and as the Apostle Paul would quote it, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And you don't disconnect the first coming from the second coming any more than you disconnect law from justice. You simply connect, look and see, and point others to the one who on the third day rose from the dead, who addresses the injustices, who provides the intervention in first and second comings, and speaks to the weighed-down heart of a sheriff whose burden, who sees violence, and he struggles with the paralyzation of the justice system. God's not done yet. Look, see, and share the good news of the risen Savior. Let's stand together. And we already see how contemporary 605 B.C. writing can be. Because your word's not time-bound. It's timeless. And it's relevant to all times. Personally, Father, we pray now for those people who are in the wait-why mode. And they've been waiting and they're crying out to you, how long? Minister to that heart. The injustices of this world cannot stand up to the interventionist for this world. Minister to that need. Speak profoundly to that heart. Lift that burden as we look and see who you are, what you've done, what you are doing, all for your glory. Praying these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.